is the Beyond the Studio podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Since this is an adult podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language being used. If this might offend ears around you, be sure to pop in your headphones before listening to this episode. So today's episode is our inaugural Beyond the Studio Book Club episode, and we are so excited because it is amazing. Uh, But before we get started, we have a couple of updates for you. The first being is that we hired our first intern. Her name is Jenna, and we want to give her a warm welcome to the team. She is a graphic design student at MICA, and she is going to be doing some graphic design work for us. So you'll be seeing her work on our social media pages and on our website. So be sure to check it out. And in addition to that, we also finally, finally set up a Patreon page. Uh, For those of you that do not know, Patreon is a website that allows fans of different creative projects to help financially support them. And uh, even though podcasting is free for you, it is not free for us. So Nicole and I actually both pay out of pocket in order to keep this show up and running which we love to do. It is very much a labor of love, but it also takes resources. So on Patreon, we have options for you to donate to the show to help with operational costs and allow us to continue to expand our reach and help more artists just like you and me. So on the Patreon, that is patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash beyond the studio podcast. So go check that out, and uh, let's get started with the episode. Today's episode, which is going to also be our first Beyond the Studio Book Club episode, we are interviewing Andrew Simonette, who is a writer, producer, choreographer, director, and founder of Artist U, which Nicole and I have both participated in. Uh, Artist U is a grassroots artist-run platform for changing the working conditions for artists, giving them the tools and the resources for creating a sustainable life and practice. And free workshops with Artist U are available in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, in South Carolina, and all of their information is completely open-sourced and available online, allowing you to have your own self-guided course, read the book, go through the workbook, check out the tools and the artist group options, and so much more. So thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I was able to be in the Baltimore April class with uh, another former podcast guest, Rachel Hume, and it was such an incredibly empowering experience. And I like, I remember when you first came in and just thanked us all for being artists. I'm like, I'm going to cry. This feels so nice. <laughs> yeah, that's always a big moment. And it's, um, it, I think it's really telling how significant that is for all of us artists to have someone... Mm-hmm see it and thank you thank thank us for doing the work and um it says a lot about i think how hard the work is how important it is but also how often we don't appreciate um what we're doing yeah and i know that um i had shared this story back um at the beginning when we started the podcast amanda and i both interviewed each other and kind of talked about what you know has been what kind of important experiences we've each had so far Um, And I also participated in Artists U a couple of years ago when I was living in Baltimore. Um, And the story was that I had actually been working full-time in an administrative job, and I was laid off, and I came home, and it was totally unexpected. Um, And I think just to prevent myself from going into crisis mode, I immediately hopped on the computer and started job searching and trying to figure out what was next. And I came across the Artist U workshop that was taking place the next day. This was on a Thursday, I think, and the workshop was going to happen Friday. It looked like it was sold out and, well, free, but all the spaces had been reserved. And I think I reached out and I just asked if there was any availability. And maybe you or someone else who's coordinating got back to me saying, oh, we actually just had someone drop out and there is one more space. And so I came the next day and it was just such perfect timing to to go through that in the middle of this transition. And 
I think it really did lay the groundwork for how I thought about the next steps. And um, it was actually really fun for both of us to go back and reread the Making Your Life as an Artist workbook, um, which we'll also talk more about here today. But um, just to realize that so many of the ideas and, and lessons from that really, I think, seeded the idea for the podcast and really still inform the way that we think about our own, um, you know, work and careers. So Thank you for for that. It was really um, an important experience for me and just the perfect time to to have that. So we we tell everyone about it and everyone should check it out. And and the book too, which is free to download. And that's so amazing. Yeah, I I think it is kind of a movement. I think of this as movement building work. And now y'all are in it and y'all are building the movement in new and exciting ways. And I think that's the, rather than thinking about programs or, who's going to help artists, that kind of attitude. I think if we think about it as community organizing, where we build a movement to change the conditions. And I'm thrilled whenever artists like you are like, hey, this is great. Why don't we take this in this new way, have a podcast, have conversations? I think that's exactly how change happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, What made you decide initially to start doing Artists You? So, <laughs> I mean, I think the the short answer is seeing so many brilliant, hardworking artists around me who were struggling, who were exhausted and overwhelmed and broke, and feeling that there was this disconnect between the sort of talents and visions that people had and how to actually make that work in a life, in an artist's life. I was part of a collaborative dance company that I started with two other artists for 20 years, and we had our stuff together enough that people would come to us and say, hey, how do you make a budget? Or how do you write the grant like this? So we spent a fair amount of time sort of doing that piecemeal. And then I started to realize that was really not, you know, then next year they'd come back and be like, and now how do you write this grant, Andrew? <laughs> so I was like, well, why don't we try to change the entire conversation? Why don't we try to change all the conditions and do that as a community, not, you know, one-on-one, but in a conversation <clears throat> We were funded by the Creative Capital Foundation, who's a really wonderful, really thoughtful foundation. And they had the, just the beginnings of this professional development program they were starting. So we were, went to this retreat. We did this little tiny thing. And it's very, it was very small and very, um, it's kind of messy at that point. But the core, the core assumptions of it, I thought, were so brilliant. They were like, look, you're not a mess. You're brilliant. You're an artist. You can solve incredibly complicated problems. Just use those skills outside the studio and take that problem Mm -hmm. solving and that creativity and apply that to all aspects of your life. It was the first time anyone had said to me, you're not a problem. (laughs) Like, there's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) In fact, you're brilliant. You're doing great work. So much of the kind of quote unquote professional development I'd been part of it started from the idea that artists were a mess, that we needed help, that we were problems. And it was often led by people who weren't artists. It was led by, you know, I remember one time the, the director of fundraising for the opera company came and told artists like how to raise money. And I was like, I don't think we're similar. <laughs> I don't think we have the similar <laughs> problems. Um, but always it was kind of condescending and it always left, leaves artists feeling like, oh God, there's something I'm not doing. There's something I'm no, not doing right. Artists, oh, we're bad with money. We're bad right. with business. And I think all those assumptions, Creative Capital really just swept all those aside. And suddenly it came from a place of skills and talents and abilities rather than a place of needs and deficits. So an opportunity came to Philly where, where um, there was a program from the Ford Foundation. And they said, we want to fund things that support individual artists. So I was like, well, I got an idea. <laughs> and so for the first six years, we worked with really small groups of artists, just 12 artists. So we worked 12 artists a year. We did those that kind of weekend workshop, but then we also met every month as a group, and we met every month one-on-one with an artist facilitator. So you had your own like artist strategic planner that you met with. Mm-hmm. And again, that was the idea of let's change all these conditions at once. Like let's really let's not just do a workshop or a one-off. Let's go deep and and try to change everything. And that was really profound. I learned so much about how different artists are. Artists are so different, and at the same time about certain common areas that artists often struggle with. And after six years of that, we, we decided to go a little broader and try to do, you know, not just 12 artists a year, but try to offer things um, more broadly. And we also, the funders were really excited about the work, so they wanted it to go other places. And that's why we, I ended up in Baltimore and South Carolina. So 
South mm-hmm. Carolina reached out to me, the um, head of the Arts Commission there. The, so there where we do work in the entire state, which is crazy and wow. wild because it's very different. And like rural artists have a whole different set of challenges than us urban right. folk. And then Baltimore, we kind of, we went to, like we just showed up in Baltimore and started talking to people, meeting artists, talking to people who work in the arts, finding partners, finding funding. And that was a huge, fascinating learning curve. And a lot of the things that I've learned in Baltimore have come back and changed what happened in Philly. So anyway, that's how, that was more than you asked, but that's how it all happened. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So is the program still supported by the Ford Foundation then? Is that how the program itself is funded? Or have you also found other sources throughout the years to sustain that work? Yeah, it's other sources. So that program, which was called LINK, which stood for Leveraging Investments in Creativity. That was a 10-year program. So when that program ended, Mm. all the funding went away. Um, Yeah, and we have local funders in each of our places that we work with, and those have changed over the years. And we have some national funders too, um, Serdna and Tremaine, a couple others. So um, I do the fundraising, and grant writing is something that I got very good at against my will, uh, running, (laughs) running a dance company. We spent uh-huh. a lot of time writing horrible grants and then very slowly learning how to write grants. So that's kind of how I'm always looking to, you know, what are the resources we can find to bring to this work? And it changes. I, I try to spend as little time as possible raising money because it's so, it can very quickly become the focus. We also keep the program really cheap. There's no like overhead. It's There's no like office. There's no staff. It's really just artist facilitators creating and delivering programming. I ran an organization and a dance company for long enough to realize how hard it is when you start to become kind of big and cumbersome and expensive, then you're doing all this fundraising just to support the thing that's trying to do the fundraising and it becomes um, Mm -hmm. kind of endless. It's own full-time job. I think it's really wonderful that you've been able to keep it free for the participants, for the artists themselves. That's why I was curious how um, you're able to support doing the program and just the, um, you know, the work and labor that goes into putting on something like that. Yeah, it's a little bit of a fight with some people, with funders. There's this idea of um, if you're not paying for something, no one thinks it's valuable. And I understand that, the psychology of that. But I think money is a huge, way more of a barrier for artists than people realize, both actually because of the financial circumstances, but also psychologically, the scarcity mindset. And Mm -hmm. it's way more of a barrier for some artists than others. And those are explicitly the artists we want to be working with. So... Yeah, but you're right. It's not free. I always try to say that's the artist. It's free for you, <laughs> but right. it's not free. Um, but yeah. I also, it doesn't take that much money to raise it. And there's a weird, um, it's the same thing with the kind of intellectual property. Making it free and open source mm-hmm. massively increases the impact. And a lot of professional development programs, they're very precious about their intellectual property. And I understand that. They're trying to generate revenue. But in my experience, the amount of revenue coming in is not huge in that realm. And you're massively reducing how far the impact could go. So I'm always trying to convince everybody else. I'm like, just give it away. Put it on YouTube. It'll like impact a thousand times more artists. But so far, it's not really working. Yeah, I know that was important to us with doing this podcast was just seeing how much free resources have helped us in our personal practices and kind of paying it forward and and yeah it's it's not free for us to do the podcast like we we pl- have plenty of expenses and the like recording and like the equipment's expensive but it's important to give it away to artists because this knowledge is not we don't own it it, it belongs to all of us we all deserve to live our best lives and to grow together. And I know Nicole has said this on the podcast before, and I like constantly remember this of a rising tide lifts all ships. And, and like, we just want to encourage community and artists talking to each other and growing together. And that's what you're doing too. And it's so impactful. And I know I had such a great experience taking the the class and just seeing the artists in completely different disciplines with very little overlap for what I'm doing. We're struggling with the same things. I'm like, oh, this writer, this singer, this director, producer, like these people are struggling with the same stuff that I'm struggling with. So we're, we're all in the same boat here. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's so much we can learn by talking to artists who also are not in our little lane. 
and we, we sometimes the the conversation like in the dance world can get a little small and we start all saying the same things over and over and just to talk to someone who's in a really different lane and also culturally really different i mean there's you know artists are everywhere and they're as diverse as every city and they're as diverse as america you wouldn't know that when you look at the art world but hearing from artists who come up with different approaches and challenges and even different ways of looking at art i've learned so much from the incredible gift of doing this work is just to meet all these artists all over the country that are doing amazing things and really doing them in very different ways than i have conceived of my work and that's thrilling the i worked with we went down and worked with artists the lumbee tribe down in north carolina and the role that arts and culture plays there in the community is really different than it the role arts and culture plays in my community and the, the, the sense that artists have there that their work is important is a complete given like no one questions it no one around them yeah. questions whether it matters and that's such a um that's such a gift to be around that energy there's other challenges they face that are massive but that clarity it made me realize how constantly i'm trying to convince people that making art is something worth doing <laughs> yeah and it's interesting how much the psychology of it all plays such a huge role in in everything else like the resources and the kind of like tactical side of things because the way that you start out with the book and one of the kind of fundamental messages that you have from the beginning is that you know, you, you have all the skills that you need as an artist to be successful in your career and you just need to take that creativity that you use in the studio and in your own work and apply it to your career. And I think that that's really interesting. And you mentioned that just a bit ago, even that applying the skills, the creativity and the resourcefulness to your art practice um, to the rest of your life is really the key. And so it's, it's interesting how much of it is really just this mindset shift, but that really becomes the foundation for everything else. Yeah. And I think the, the vision that artists have of what so what am I doing? What is my work? Where does it live in the world? Where is it important in the world? And what skills I have? I think artists are massively, massively underestimate all of those. The importance of the work, the potential impact the work can have, and the impact it's already having, and the incredible range of really high-level skills it takes to deliver a piece of art to the world. And that recognition, when you start from a place of kind of power and impact and um, skill, it just changes all the conversations. And mm -hmm. that's sort of how we, sometimes in RSU, we say, all right, so I want to change the conversations in my own head to make them right. sustainable and supporting, and then change the conversations I have with other artists. Because so much of what we learn about the art world and making our lives comes from other artists. And then once we change all those conversations, then we can change the conversations with the funders or the institutions or the bigger forces. But it does, I feel like it really does start with how we get clarity first for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's so much easier to have a clear perspective on someone else's practice. Like I could give someone a pep talk like nobody's business, but then when it comes to trying to encourage myself and, and give myself honest feedback, I'm like, why am I such a jerk to myself? Like I hold myself to a standard that I would never expect any other person to meet and it's unrealistic. And why, why do I do this to myself? But I think artists all kind of do that because there's so much personal tie into the work that you, you sort of wrap up your, your confidence and your self-esteem with your practice and not just like, I'm a productive artist doing good work. It's like, I have all these feelings and art and it's overwhelming and, and I should be better always. I do wonder I about the source that. of that because I, I think that, that story, that internal story is very common. The story that mm -hmm. I'm not doing enough. The basic feeling that you could look at some other artist's work and just give them a huge pep talk, be like, this is amazing. Oh my God, I love this about it. You're doing incredible things. But that it's really hard to treat your own work that way. There's a human part of that. I think a lot of humans who are not artists feel that way. But there's a particularly punishing story that artists have that's something about a kind of perfectionism. I think it's something we often inherit from our you know, elders or mentors or teachers, the, the kind of grinding away ethic. But there also is just... Uh, it's really hard for artists to have a realistic and positive sense of what their work is. They tend to, it tends to either be sort of grandiose, like I'm the best artist and I should be in every museum. Right. Like huge ego <laughs> yeah. or very. Or it's like, insecure. I suck. I can't even believe anyone cares at all. Right. And so where's the like realistic self-assessment that really sees your work and the potential 
of it, what it's done and what it could do. It's really important to bring other voices into that and ask the people around you to get that. But I feel like that's been a real journey for me as an artist to have, um, I think I started off very like self-hating and grandiose. And I think I've been slowly trying to get to that. You know, where does my work actually fit? It's not for everyone. It's not for everything. Not everything I make is some masterpiece. But I do, I, I, I do try to get to that kind of like realistic sense of where my work lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's that starving artist cliche that I think you're still trying to break apart, you know. And then even from an early age, I would say if uh, I remember looking at colleges and wanting to pursue art and, you know, having my parents ask if this was a, a realistic path to go down. And so I think there's always this assumption that you're in for a really hard road. And so you know, you internalize that over time and it's really hard to overcome and, and to break out of. And it is a hard road. I mean, I, I don't mean to say like it's easy to be an artist at all. And I, I always try to yeah, tell people absolutely. that. But making a sustainable life as an artist is not easy, but it's also not as hard as what artists are doing all the time, which is creating something out of nothing and having the mm -hmm. vision and the insight to start from nothing and create something that's never existed before. That's really hard. Making a sustainable life is challenging, but it's it's way more linear than that. The, the problems in the studio are magical, non-linear problems. And mm -hmm. the problems in sustaining yeah. yourself as an artist are, are way more linear. They're time and money problems. And those are, in some ways, kind of boring problems. They're not nearly as interesting as what we do in the studio. So I do think it is challenging though. I just want to say, I don't think any artist in America has it easy. Yeah. I just think that idea is so empowering though, that you have all of the skills you need and you're already using all of the creativity that you need for your career in your own work as an artist. And it seems so simple, but it just seems so fundamental to everything else I'm curious to know if over the years that you've been doing Artists You, do you have you found that any of the core tenets or like the strategies that you've been teaching, have those changed or have they remained pretty central to the first, you know, pilot program um, that you did in Philadelphia? A lot of what's happened is kind of simplifying and sort of deepening that work. So it's not so much that it's shifted, but as we started to work more broadly with more artists, with artists in different places, with artists outside of performing arts. When we started off, we would do 12 artists, all of whom were performing artists. What we had to do was sort of get beneath the surface questions of the discipline, you know, like what a performing artist struggle with, and get underneath it to kind of the structural questions that all or many artists struggle with. So I, I think of it as kind of deepening mm -hmm. and simplifying, but it stayed it stayed close to the, um, the vision, which is that we artists solve it together. We solve it for ourselves and we solve it with each other rather than looking to, you know, outsiders or saviors or who's going to fix us, that we really start in that kind of community organizing place. But I, I, I'm sure I'm trying to think of something specific that changed. I mean, I've been on a real journey around kind of power and equity and race because I'm a white man and I'm college educated. My dance company was all three of us who started it are white and college educated. And coming to understand the profound privilege of that and all of the opportunities and resources we got because of that and all of mm -hmm. the, the barriers we didn't face because, because of that. So that I think has been a real, that continues to be a huge journey. And I, I can't believe the appalling BS that artists of color face, that um, a lot of female artists face, that a lot of trans and queer artists face. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. if you work closely with artists, you learn how incredibly unequal things are. And, and you also learn how incredibly resilient and brilliant at solving that <laughs> artists of color and female artists. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a lot of where the work is now, is trying to say both, what is artists you plus power, plus questions of inequity? and also really trying to push hard to reach all artists. There's a lot of things we do to try to get beyond the kind of nonprofit fine art MFA definition of artist and to reach people who are working in forms and in ways and in communities that don't, that don't consider themselves part of those structures. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the real, that's the real deep work of artist organizing, which is to actually find all the artists, which almost, almost no one can do that. And I'm constantly shocked by people who say, oh no, well, yeah, we've got all the artists right here. And really they're pointing to this tiny little subset. Yeah. I know we try to do that 
or try to be aware of that uh, with the podcast because obviously we're two white women in our 20s that went to college um, for art and we I, like I can speak on behalf of myself but I'm not here to represent the entire artist world but I want to make sure that as a show we do represent a wide spectrum of artists that have gone to college that have not gone to college that are you know of varying age race gender background experience interests uh, types of art and and it's it's hard but there is such an unequal representation of artists in the art world despite the fact that there are artists of all backgrounds out there but they're not all being acknowledged no. and respected and, and given the same opportunities and many artists are f- are functioning really strongly and happily without connections to the fine art world and the fine art world is one set of resources and one set of conversations it's many sets of resources and conversations, but it's not the limit of the conversations about art in this culture. And I, I think that's important to say, too. It's not, to me, always the goal to platform people into the fine arts world. If they want mm-hmm. access to those resources, let's talk about that. And let's talk about the concrete ways to get them. But it's also to um, to draw a much bigger circle around what art and culture is in America. And and in some ways to, to see how non relevant to some of the most vital conversations the fine art world is that the fine art world is is elitist in both sense of the world it excludes people but it also is um not at the center of some of the most important conversations yeah right yeah that's an important distinction too because another thing that you talk about in the book is partnerships and looking like outside of your own spheres and outside of the like structures that you might be comfortable operating within to looking elsewhere and looking around you and considering everyone as a potential partner. And I think that that idea that the art world is this sort of center and like the structure within everything else operates kind of lends itself to that scarcity mindset that is so dangerous because there are a limited number of opportunities and resources and grants and whatever for artists and for people if you're only considering those as the path forward into sustainability or success as an artist. And so I think, um, you know, for artists who are within that, stepping outside of it and realizing that's not the only way. And then for artists who are, are already excluded from that structure, realizing that they, you know, have power in other partnerships, that that's not the only way um, and that's not even ne- necessary um, for their own success, uh, I think is really powerful too. Yeah, there's been several times in workshops when um, hip-hop artists have heard about like the fees that performing artists get in the art world and they're like that's horrible don't ever work for that I would never work for that you got to get out of this art world you got to get over here where there's way more money in the commercial world Mm -hmm. and just to have that all that learning in all directions and to realize you know and I know hip-hop artists who are like yeah I don't really mess with the art world anymore because because the money's so bad and the pretension's too high and you know Uh I just I'm much better over here I think it's it's so important for artists, like you said, to kind of zoom out and see that there are really different systems and partners out there that you can find and they'll change over your career and your life. And none of them are verdicts on your work. You don't have to get this partner to love you in order to be a strong artist. And that's, I think, the hardest thing for people in the fine arts world is the constant sense that... Right. There's this like validation that comes with the prestige of these certain types of awards or recognition. Yeah. And it's endless. You can never really get comfortable because you there's always something new to get there's always something you didn't get and that ability to define success for yourself I think is really at the center and that's something that I think you asked about what has changed in artists you I think that question of really being conscious of your own definition of success at this moment from a really specific moment like okay what's a moment when your work went out in the world and you were like yes that was it you know, performing there or that audience seeing the show or doing that workshop. Like, what's a moment where you really landed something? And then how can you get more of those moments? If you let the the world or the art world define success for you, you're just always going to be in for a world of hurt because there's always going to be tons of rejection. And their definition might not be relevant to you. That might not be your definition of success. So that, I think, zooming out both to see the resources, but also to know yourself and say, mm-hmm. this is what a really successful project or year looks like to me 
and how do I find the partners to fit that? And supposed to, well, what's out there? I'll start chasing whatever I see and then mm-hmm. I'll let them define success for me. Yeah. And those discoveries only come through being in conversation with other artists. So like you were saying, Amanda, being an artist, you and able to look around and see like there are all these writers and directors who are doing really different types of work and we can all learn from each other. I mean, that's amazing. And, and then, like you said, Andrew, it becomes a question of how do you get all these people in a room together and how do you enable that conversation to take place so that we can all benefit from one another and, you know, share our own stories and learn from each other. And how do you build a, a non-complainy, non-whiny conversation? That's kind of what our right. issue so does. Right, so it's not a big group therapy session. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot to complain about and I get that. Like, you need to vent, but I... I Part of the reason I started RSU was like, I just can't be, I just can't have my other, all my conversations with the artists be everybody venting about how crappy it all is and how unfair it all is and how you don't have this and you don't have that. That's important. Have the people you vent to, but I want to, I want to take a positive and realistic approach and say, what do we have? Not what are we missing? Not what do we lack, but what do we have? And how can we use what we have to build what we need? Mm -hmm. I noticed in the class so much of what you were talking about was focused on and in the book as well focused on empowering the artist to kind of believe in themselves and 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 take this the steps to kind of take control of their own careers or their own practice and um I noticed also that like you don't really talk about giving advice and like telling artists here's what you need to do but it's like what do you think you need to do what it, what is going to make you happy? What are your your goals and interests? Like what what do you want your life to look like? That yeah, we have this policy which is we don't give advice and we really all the artists you facilitators we work on that really strongly which is you ask questions, you try to uncover what the artist is working towards, what matters to them. Because a lot of artists are like, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. I feel helpless. And it it's simpler in the moment to be like, okay, here's what you should do. But in the long run, <laughs> That it's, that's really ruinous because it really takes away the power and the agency of the artist. In the long run, the way you're going to build what you want to build is by kind of owning your own power. There's a man named Mauricio Miller who's an anti-poverty activist who has a really radical vision of anti-poverty work, which is very similar to Artist U. So he's been a real mentor and inspiration to me, which is in Mauricio's program, low-income families come together and they talk about, they basically set goals and they come together every, every month and talk about where they're at. And there's no outsider. There's no like social service person. There's no help. The only thing the program will do is then try to find resources and funding for the plans that they propose and try to move forward. So it's this very simple, very low cost structure because there's no you know, social service professionals. There's no organization. And the results are radical. People's changes in income, in education, in health, like everything changes for people. Because for the first time, and so many of the families say this, for the first time someone says, well, where do you want to go? And you probably can figure it out better than anybody else, so go to it. And I think that that core understanding of power is really rare. And so many well-intentioned things for artists, they seem really nice, they're generous, but they're fundamentally recreating a power structure that is disempowering to artists. Mm-hmm. And I, I have fights about this all the time at the national level because I'll be in rooms where people are talking about what artists need. And there's like two artists there. You know, I'm like, well, so this is the problem. The problem is everybody here is talking about artists. Like it needs to be done by artists. This work has to be led by artists. Like how can you follow artists rather than trying to help? Helping is a really complex and often kind of toxic thing (laughs) that comes with Mm -hmm. a lot of privilege and assumptions and power relations that are hard for the helper to see, but really easy for the person being helped to see. So I would say, read Mauricio Miller. He has an amazing book and he is radical. I think everyone should understand the way he sees power. I was curious if there are other specific examples that you've seen or gotten to witness over the years in working with artists you of um, artists who are also doing that, crafting their careers in really unique ways, kind of taking the teachings of artists you or, or things that they've learned from other facets of their life and they're finding partners outside of the conventions of the art world or um, just any really great examples that you've seen of that in your own work. Well, I think my first response to that would be, I think artists are already piecing together really complicated and intricate lives. And a lot of what I'm doing is learning from that Mm -hmm. and then feeding that back to artists and being like, here, here's one thing that someone did, or what about this? Have you considered that? 
So I think of myself as more learning from that than maybe causing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think artist you pushes people to refine that, but I think the brilliance of how artists make their lives is already going on long before and without artists you. But yeah, I would say the things that have most inspired me is seeing artists whose work is really um really radical and challenging. <laughs> it's challenging formally, it's challenging in terms of content. It's challenging to the communities the artist comes from. It's challenging to the art world. Seeing those artists really have pushed that work and have impact and find incredible spaces for that work to live, that I think is always the most exciting to me. Because I think it's, you know, I think of an artist I work with in South Carolina who's an artist you facilitator now. And all the artists you facilitators, secretly we do this work because it really helps us. Because <laughs> being in these conversations <laughs> is just like really helpful and reminding ourselves of these things is really important. And not feeling alone, you know, it's really important. So she, um, she makes really, I would say, so Michaela Pilar-Brown, she's an African-American artist, visual artist that has now started to branch into performing as well. And the work is really strong, challenging, experimental work, work that doesn't fit easily into a category of black art, work that, you know, doesn't have black vernacular around it. So black audiences might be like, is this, this is too strange, too weird. And work that is really disruptive to a lot of art world expectations. So she has, she did this installation piece, um, a really beautiful, immersive and confrontational piece. And because she'd been like finding partners and people who understood her work and people who wanted to deliver it, one of her partners who really loves her work was um, curating this big art festival that has a big art prize attached to it. And he was like, come do that in this art festival. It'd be amazing. And she was like, you know, I'm never going to win that. Of course I'm not. Like that's, you know, my work's too radical. It's too weird. And then she won the prize. <laughs> she won the big check. And it was just one of those moments where you're like, you know, if Artists like that, when they, when they think strategically and they find their partners, there is such a, a thirst for her work. I mean, the, you know, the amazing, not shocking thing is that instead of seeing, instead of the world being like, that work's too weird for me, you start to find out the world is so hungry for it. The world needs the truths that she's bringing and um, the vision that she brings. So artists like that, I find just the most exciting and the most inspiring that, that not only is it okay to take risks? But that's really our job. Our job is to be doing, asking the really difficult things of ourselves and our audiences and of the work and of this culture. And that done thoughtfully, not only is that not a problem, not only does that not trip you up, that actually brings you the partners and resources that will that will make your work thrive. So that's mm-hmm. the most exciting to me. Thank you. Yeah, I know when we started this podcast, one, I, I know I probably would not have done it alone. So like collaborating with Nicole was sort of a way to encourage myself to go for it and to to go through things. It's like, well, I will have the accountability of another person on this mm-hmm. journey with me. So I have to keep showing up. But it's so easy to kind of get in your head about uh, and like talk yourself out of doing projects because you just don't think that people are going to be as accepting as they often are. And it's so important to go for those challenges. And that really is our, our job as artists is to take those risks. Yeah, not that I think all artists need to do that or are doing that politically charged work. That's not what I mean. But rather mm-hmm. that wherever your work is to kind of push mm-hmm. it to its fullest, fullest and kind of riskiest version. I think that is, that's a really sacred role. And I think it's so thrilling to me that that is... And I I found this with my dance company too. You know, when we first started applying for stuff as a dance company, we were like, well, we we should probably submit the work that looks like like dancey, like kind of like dance, because a lot of our work's like really experimental and strange. So we were submitting like this one piece that was like a little more normal. And we got nothing, like no, not, never got anywhere with any of it. So finally we were like, all right, screw it. Let's just put in what we actually care about, which is this really weird experimental improvisational work. And we immediately got our first grant. And that was just such a lesson to me of lead with what's most distinctive about your work. Like don't try to hide, don't try to look normal. Don't try to fit into some box. Cause that box is way more, that's your invention, right? There, there isn't that box. And artists, because the art world is so um, under-resourced and a little mysterious, it's so easy for us to project onto it all of these 
sort of mean labels and boxes that will be put in. Oh, they think this, or the art world thinks this about me. The art world doesn't think, there, there's no art world. Like I always tell people, there's not like an art world. There's a bunch of people mm-hmm. trying to make things happen. Like find the ones who are making things happen that you care about and connect to them. And don't worry about what the quote unquote art world thinks because it has no opinion. So we've talked a lot about the artists you program and the book and the development of all of that. Um, And you've touched a little bit on your own personal experiences and how they've kind of fed into that. Um, Can you take us through a little more of your own career, like some of the other things you're working on currently outside of this? Yeah. So my life took a huge, my artistic life took a huge turn. I, I, um, I started writing in 2004. I started writing fiction on the side of having a dance company <laughs> and raising a family and running Artist U. And sure, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I had plenty of time. And gradually that work became more and more important to me. And gradually my work in my dance company became less and less like performance. So the last piece I made with Headlong was called This Town is a Mystery. And it's a It was a piece in four households in Philadelphia. So it was four families, different parts of the city. And I made performances with them. So the families themselves perform. It's their music, their movement, their stories. And they perform in their home. So the audience would come to the house, watch the show, and then everybody has like a potluck dinner together. So it was a journey into like these amazing, beautiful, private worlds and the amazing architecture of a family and a home and how different homes are and families are, and then bringing together this kind of fellowship where people could come and have this very uh, intense and lovely experience with a family, maybe in a neighborhood they'd never been to. So the work was really pulling away from dance making, and simultaneously the writing was becoming more and more important to me. So in 2013, I left Headlong, and that was a really difficult decision because you build something for 20 years, especially in the arts, and you're like, I got to hold mm-hmm. on to it. How could I let go of this? There's that scarcity mentality where you, you know, if you have some little piece that you've built, you can never let go of it. But it really wasn't, it wasn't where my work was going. And, um, and running a dance company was really exhausting. And everyone who runs one will tell you, it's really, it's a financial disaster. So you're constantly trying to figure out money every year, trying to solve that problem. And So I left and um, I kept writing and I had written the manuscript for a novel that I was, that I'd sort of put out in the world and some people were sort of interested, but I never got anywhere with that. And actually right when I left my dance company, I started a second novel and four years into that, I actually got an agent and then I got a book deal. So last year after writing for 13, 14 years with no one caring or paying any attention. I got an agent and I got a book deal with a publisher, like a two book deal. And it had real money attached to it because it was, it's one of these things where multiple publishers like bid against each other, like an auction. Mm -hmm. So that was really transformative. That was really life-changing. But the whole process of really committing to writing, even though I had no outsider, outsiders interested, that was really great. Finding my way as a solo artist without a structure and really committing to the work and the practice, even though I didn't have outside interest. And then trying to figure out how to navigate publishing. It was like starting all the way over in a really Mm -hmm. challenging, but really I learned so much from that, from kind of starting from zero and being like, okay, this doesn't work like the dance world works, but structurally there's some similarity. So what I have to do is figure out what, what can I carry forward from what I know? What do I have to learn that's new? And how do I, how do I walk myself into this new world? They didn't care at all about, uh, my dance background. I was like, Oh, I'll be like, look, I'm an artist from another discipline, but you know, it's cool. Cause I, I do all this stuff, right? So I'm just writing a book. It's cool. But it turns out that meant nothing to anyone. They're like, well, what have you published? It's so interesting. You're like a very established dance professional, but then in this other sphere, it's like you're totally starting from scratch at the beginning. And it's like saying what applies, what doesn't apply. uh, I really like motorcycles too. Like they just don't care. They're like, that that has nothing to do with us. (laughs) And the fact that you accomplish something there is no sign of any, anything that will happen to you in publishing. And it's a very, it's a very brutal world because so many people want to write. And so the gatekeepers are really cold and really rude and they don't read your stuff and they don't return your emails. Agents receive thousands of unsolicited, you know, pitches like queries every year from 
people mm. who aren't published. They probably don't even read most of them. They might answer 1% of them and ask to see, see a manuscript. And of that 1%, they might make an offer to represent a handful of people. So it's, the dynamics of it are really brutal. So I had to get a whole different approach to being rejected because in the dance world, there's definitely a lot of rejection, but you know a lot of the people. It's a pretty smallish world. You know, there's the places you might tour, the people who might fund you. Um, there's not thousands of them. Whereas this world, there really are thousands of agents and thousands of writers trying to be published. So I read a thing by a, an artist who said, I'm trying to get 100 rejections in the next three months because if I get 100 rejections, then I know I'll get some yeses. And so I just flipped the way that I was submitting the novel. I was kind of doing like one agent at a time. You know, I'd, maybe if someone would tell me about someone or I'd read about someone, like, oh, submit it to this. And I'd wait. I'd be nervous. It would take weeks, sometimes months. And then I'd get rejected. Like, oh, that hurts so bad. I got to know. And then I just flipped that to like, oh, I should be getting like tons of no's. Like I should get dozens and dozens of no's. So I started <laughs> submitting it much more widely. And within a month, I had offers of representation from agents. So wow. it's like I had to really change that approach. And, um, and also, I, there's something about the um, publishing world. It's, it, it's a business and an art form. And dance is really just an art form. There's really no... Um, there, there is some commercial work if you dance, like in music videos and hip-hop and stuff like that. But the contemporary dance world that I was a part of, even if someone's presenting you, they're really doing you a favor. They're losing money. Like, they're fundraising to figure it out. No one's making, <laughs> nobody's making any money. But the publishing world, the reason they sign with you is they're like, I'm going to make some money with you. Like, you're going to make money and I'm going to make money. That's what your agent believes. And then the editor... When you get a publisher, that's what the publisher believes. And that's a really, there's something really wonderful about that, that they're not just doing you a favor, that you don't like have to feel bad that someone's showing your work. <laughs> that it really is like, oh, right, if I do well, then you do well. That's really wonderful. But there's also this thing, because they're an art and a business, where they'll just shift conversations. They'll be talking about the art, and then all of a sudden it pivots into business. And it's just really jarring to me because I'm like, wait, are we talking about character development or are we talking about selling this book? Because those are different conversations <laughs> to me. But for them, they're just like, oh, yeah, it's all part of the same thing. So that's been a great and strange experience. And it's also really informed a lot of the conversations I have in Artists U because artists who do work in, in spheres where there's an art and a business part of it, it's been really helpful for me in those conversations as well. Yeah, I feel like that's something Amanda and I talk about all the time, which is how it's it's such a different conversation and it is really hard to switch gears because you're trying to kind of professionalize something that in some cases it can be and is a profession, like it can sustain you, but you know, being an artist is, is so much more than that. It's not really a, a career strictly in in that sense of the word, it's, yeah, it's really just a, a way of living. So I think that even compartmentalizing in our own lives, like when we're, we're doing the studio work or when we're focused on the more administrative end, it has to happen at separate times. Like it's really hard to shift gears and it's just a different brain and um, different language and just really everything about it is so different. So yeah, that's something that we've kind of had to figure out and how to switch between those two. But it's interesting that, yeah, you could go from dance to publishing and, and immediately the conversation is completely different. And it's really, uh, writing is really isolating. And there was a part of me that I think craved that because dance is so social and there's so many people. And I was part of a collaborative company too. So it was always, always the other people around, both to like inspire you or pick up when you get lost or discouraged You'd be like, well, let's try this. But it was also the social complexity of getting groups of people together, getting them to get along, like getting rehearsal going. You're always managing that social energy. So writing alone has been amazing and really challenging and really wonderful. It's so isolating. <laughs> it's also so easy. Like at any moment, like right now, if we stop talking, I could just start writing. Like there's no barrier at all. And when you have a dance company, you're like, all right, I got to get the space. I got to schedule some dancers. We got like, there's just all this logistics to even get into a creative space. So I love how, I love how barrier free it is. And I love that mm -hmm. it's, it's pushed me back on myself as a writer. But now I, I'm starting to feel that thing of, I need more community around the work. So I'm working on the sort of second book, the sequel to this first book. And I'm really craving like 
artistic community. And my artistic community here in Philly is all performing artists for the most part. Um, so I'm really trying to figure out like, how do I build community around this in this new form? And, uh, yeah, but I do I love, I love how hard it is to work alone. And I have such respect, like for you all, like solo practicing visual artists. I'm like, how do you, how do you keep going? How do you keep the momentum? How do you not just give up in like a puddle of like, like fear and self hate every day? <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I mean, I know if- for myself, it helps that my partner is also an artist. And so like he and I share a studio space and he's a musician. So we're doing completely different things because I do more craft based work. But having someone else that I share a space with has been incredibly helpful. And I know after leave or after finishing college, I, I really felt that isolation a lot where I was like, oh, I was used to going to class and constantly being surrounded by artists that were looking at my work and talking about it. And and I was able to look at their work and talk about theirs. And now we've all graduated and everyone moved away and I'm still here and now I have to find a new community. It, it's really difficult and you, you totally get in your head in that isolation. But I found that doing this podcast has kind of reopened my opportunity for community because there were people here in Baltimore that I had never even talked to before that have reached out because of the show. And now we get together for like regular coffee and talk about our practice and it's so helpful I, I i have no idea how people work alone all the time i mean i do often but i need that balance yeah and i don't think anyone ever really does i mean even if parts of your your studio work are really solo like you know i paint in a studio by myself for long stretches of time and i know i was even just talking about like compartmentalizing these kind of facets of your life but on the other hand, like trying to break down the kind of boundaries around all the different aspects of your life and work as an artist is um, one thing that I, I'm trying to do more of because even if one part of working in the studio is is solo, you know, like this podcast I feel is an, an equal part of that creative community and sort of artistic practice and then, um, you know, just having conversations with friends that aren't even really art related, but somehow we're, we're kind of like circling around it like that's an important part of the community. So even if for me, like that, the making of the work itself, like the production isn't necessarily collaborative. Um, there's so much else that goes into it that really is. And, you know, no one really ever does anything alone. So it's, it's an interesting blend because I think that as an artist, you have to be comfortable spending a lot of time just in your own head and thoughts and it's a very it's really interior work but also like in order to to keep making your work to get it out there to spur it along and you know be in conversation with people it's like that's all very social collaborative work so that dynamic is really um I think for me like you know there has to be a balance and and everyone has a different threshold for how much they're comfortable spending time working alone versus with others and um i've been doing artist residencies for the first time like these artist retreats which dance companies don't really do in the same way like maybe you go somewhere to make a work but you then you all go so it's really like everybody's there and it's logistics mm-hmm. and schedules but going just as an individual artist to one of these artist retreats it's amazing like i was sort of like god i wish i'd done this earlier these are they're incredible <laughs> That space you get that opens up artistically when you really have these wide open stretches and you know that everybody else is also doing that in their own studio, but they're not bothering you and nobody's like, there's no, you don't have to deal with family. I don't have to deal with meals. It's incredible. So that piece has been, that piece of the solo practice has been really nourishing and beautiful. It's also hard to do, and I don't know if you all feel this with your visual artwork, but so one of the things with dance is you're, not only are you constantly with people in the studio, so you'll run through a piece and, you know, someone's watching it, or there's sort of always this feedback loop and there's audience there, Mm -hmm. but also you're going to maybe do a showing or a public event and then a performance. Like I've been writing for whatever, 14 years. Like I don't have a single reader yet. Like my book hasn't even come out. doesn't even come Uh out until November. (laughs) It's like a decade of work without a single, you know, except for the people that I've shown it to like I haven't had an audience yet and that's just wild to me how long and visual artists too can be working on a body of work for years sometimes before it has a public exhibition that has been I don't know that just shocks me I'm like how do you all do it and how do you 
how do you keep the, not just the momentum, but almost like the critical discussion going without audience? Yeah, that's interesting. And I, it just had me thinking about how performance work is by nature. Like it hinges on having to parties like the performer and then there's an audience or a viewer and that's the dynamic between those two is like where the work exists and so you can't really have well I don't know is a performance piece a performance piece if there's no one around to see it it's like if a tree falls in the woods <laughs> but <laughs> with with other types of visual art I feel like that's not as um as much of the conversation always or not as like critical necessarily um so I, I haven't thought about that as much to be honest because you know i I don't come from a performance background and this will probably kill you to hear, but in a lot of ways, the audience is kind of secondary. It's like you're making your work, you're, you know, asking questions in the studio. It's sort of, again, like this really internal inquiry and then you put it out there and that's like the extent of the, the audience participation, you know? But um, I, I am starting to think more about that in my work. And, and I think especially when it comes to this type of um, like community organizing, like you're saying, this is all very relational. And um, so there's, there's always multiple participants and um, that collaborative dynamic is, uh, is so central to it. But yeah, I think that's one thing that's also kind of bizarre about working as an artist is that in some cases, it's not that way. You could just for years be working independently. Well, you're not in the room when the audience sees the work. Like even when visual artists uh -huh. do show the work, people are going to see it and you're not there. Like whenever you perform, yeah. you're always in the space with the people seeing it. And you might not know what everybody thinks, but there's a lot of energy and vibe and there's a lot that you get back from that. And then also afterwards, they can come talk to you and say something. The yeah. work is never, the audience is never seeing the work when you're not there. <laughs> they only see the work when you're in the room. And it's so yeah. strange to, with publishing because you're never in the room when people are reading your book. You never actually get that energy back. So maybe you get a, an email or someone writes in, but it's all, that all feels very abstract to me. Like, yeah. what is it like when you show your work in a gallery museum? for weeks or months and you're not even there like I don't know how do you take in that <laughs> it's a much quieter thrill like when I was in high school I used I was a musician and so I used to do a lot of performing in that sense um, and I remember like there's just there is this adrenaline like you're up on a stage and you you just you have this kind of rush where it's like the the momentum like the build-up all of the rehearsals and practicing has kind of led up to this this moment so it's really like time-based in that way but with um for me i feel like working in the studio and painting it's just i don't know it's like more endurance based because you're or in a different way like you just have to find that rush or like energy in, in like a more quiet sustained way because there's not really that final moment or maybe you put up an exhibition and you get to kind of like take it all in and there's that but yeah it is really different i know i'm in kind of a unique position as a maker because i'm regularly at craft shows. So I am there at my booth where potential customers are coming up, looking at my work, talking about it. And that's, I know that's helped me a ton, just being able to see people react to my work. Sometimes it's amazing and, and people will come up and they're like, oh, I've had some of your stuff at home for a little while. It brings me so much joy. And like, that is why I create, that is what I want is to just make things that bring people joy. But also at the opposite end, all the time people are giving me feedback that I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, that's not helpful at all. Like all the time people will be like, oh, you make all these pop culture prints. You should make a print of this. I'm like, but I've never seen that. That means nothing to me. I'm not going to create something just for the purpose of selling it if it means nothing to me. Um, but having that feedback it, is really helpful. And I do that with my craft work. I don't do that at all with my photography work. I have no idea what people think of that because I don't show it at all. Um, and maybe I will at some point, but it, it can be kind of tricky kind of balancing between different disciplines and interests, but the audience matters in some ways and doesn't in others. If yeah. that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Sense. No. And I feel that too, as a performer, you, you take things in. It's not that it's like a focus group where you're trying to be like, Hey, everybody tell me how to change this work. <laughs> But there's a lot of energetic stuff that comes in, and there's a lot of thoughts that people say afterwards. And then some of them really stick. Some of them really resonate with you, both things that are strong in the work that can continue, things that might get stronger, things you could change. And certain of those stick, and then that kind of feeds back into that work. But there's that cycle. And I think what I'm wondering about writing is, how's there, what's the cycle going to be? Like, How am I going to get 
that conversation to feed back into my next writing project rather than just mm-hmm. the way a lot of writers describe it. It's like, well, you push it out in the world and either you like watch social media and hear a lot of horrible things about what people think about your work or you ignore that and then once in a while someone passes on a nice compliment. <laughs> but I was like, well, where's, the, where's the loop? Where's the like, yeah, artistic loop of artwork you need like a writer's group or some yeah but it's almost not just writers it's almost uh, to me it is audience like who's reading the book not not just other art because other artists are important that that conversation is important but that's easier to find yeah anyway so i'm i'm learning about that that's my artist you project try to figure out (laughs) how to be a damn writer Andrew, is there anything else that either you're currently working on or um, anything that you'd like to share we haven't really touched on yet? So I'm thinking a lot about sort of next steps with Artist U work. And mm-hmm. um, one thing about Artist U is we always try to keep it really interesting to us because us as the artists who lead it, like it has to stay relevant and interesting to us. It can't become kind of old and stale. So we're always changing and tweaking and trying new things. But I'm really trying to think now about how to um, how can we pass this work on without the institutions, without the funders or the programs in the way like how can we pass this work from artist to artist? How can it really become contagious and viral and yeah, kind of be based in our own conversations? Because even artists, you it does. It depends on partners. It depends on funders. It depends on organizations. You know, we do workshops in Baltimore and. Philly and other places. But is there a way that we could do this work that didn't have those kind of intermediaries in the way? So we're playing around with working groups and maybe some some ways that we could support artists to do this work independently. The artists could convene in conversations in their own communities and we sort of support that and work with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just putting that out there because um, maybe you or someone who's listening to this <laughs> has <laughs> ideas and the, um, or has examples of people who have done this with artists or with other people how can we build kind of resources that get past artist to artist and we don't have to follow the kind of ups and downs of funding or the strange power dynamics of arts organizations or the limits that the art world puts on who it considers an artist? How can we maybe using technology kind of scale beyond that? So that's my next mm-hmm. big set of questions. And anyone who has the answers, please contact me. <laughs> Well, hopefully this will help because I know uh, we're we're using the Making Your Life as an Artist. We're using this as our first book club book where we encourage our listeners to read along with us, to become part of the discussion and bringing you on so that you're able to share beyond what's in your book. And because it's open source, we figured it would be the perfect first book because there's not even the pressure of like, go buy this book right now. It's like, just go online and download it. It's free. And I read it first when Nicole took Artists You years ago, and she then sent me the book. She was like, this is really good. You got to read this. Um, And so I I had had some of that information prior to taking Artists You myself. But yeah, hopefully this will help encourage that, that, or like get that ball rolling. Amen. Keep it rolling. Keep it rolling, people. (laughs) Keep this movement rolling. Um, Oh, where can artists find your work? And when your book comes out, when is that happening? Comes out November 13th, 2018. Wilder. All right, go get the book. (laughs) Yeah, and they can find me now. I have my first ever individual, like, artist website. Like, I've never been an individual artist. I've always been part of um, a collaboration in a company. So, yeah, andrewsimonette.com. You can read up about Wilder and follow what I'm doing. Uh, Excellent. Come on along. Come along for the ride. We're going to have a big party here in Philly, November 19th. So if you're in Philly, come party with the book. <laughs> uh, and where can people find Artists U online? So artistsu.org, A-R-T-I-S-T-S, letter U.org. Um, or you can Google it, or you can Google Making Your Life as an Artist. Um, yeah, you'll, you'll find it. And we have resources there, and then you can also find out about the, you know, if you're in a place we do workshops and we do do workshops other places people bring us in to do things so we'll post that there too but also if you have any great solutions about how to scale this work reach out yeah thank you so much for being a guest on our show it was such a pleasure being able to talk to you and kind of pick your brain on on more artwork (laughs) thank you and keep going with this great work i love it i love what y'all are doing thank you 
All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at beyondthe.studio. And Andrew, thank you for making the work and putting your creative art out there. (laughs) Thank you. And you're welcome. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. Look ahead. Great. Yeah. Somehow when you both talk um, at once, I lose you, just so you know. It gets all... Oh. Boing, 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 boing. <laughs> <laughs>